Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Football Social Daily. Welcome to Football Social Daily. The days are ticking down. Just three to go until Premier League football is back for the new season. If you want to keep bang up to date with all the top flight news, gossip and opinion, then you are in the right place. This is the only daily podcast focusing exclusively on the Premier League during the course of the season. So hit subscribe and you won't miss a thing. Plenty of transfer talk to go through on today's show, including a flurry of activity at Sheffield United and Everton as they respectively gear up for the new campaign. Plus the latest that is Manchester United and Jadon Sancho. It's said United aren't prepared to give up on their chase for the Dortmund star just yet. But it's international football which has been front and centre this week. England ended a lacklustre week with a goalless draw against Denmark. But the main point of conversation has been the two youngsters who were sent home from three lines duty. Mason Greenwood and Phil Foden, who broke COVID-19 regulations whilst away with the England squad. We'll discuss that as well as Manchester City's Kevin De Bruyne, who has officially been announced as the PFA Player of the Year. I'm Niall, welcome to Football Social Daily, where to chew the fat with me today we have Jim Salverson. Hello Jim. Hello Niall. And we've also got Marley Anderson as well. Hi Marley. Hello boys. Right, let's begin with England. And I know we probably should mention that not everyone who listens to Football Social Daily follows the England national team. But we are based in the country and... Not everyone who is on Football Social Daily <laughs> follows the national team. Very true, very true. But we bust, we probably should say we are based in England and nearly all of England's players, except the odd couple, ply their trade in the Premier League. So forgive us for a moment if you are of another persuasion internationally, but this does have Premier League relevance. Last night, the three Lions played out a nil-nil ball draw with Denmark. This comes after scraping a late 1-0 win in Iceland the other day. And we spoke about the Iceland game on Monday's show, so let's look at the Denmark game tonight, Jim. It wasn't so much the result which is getting people talking, because even though it was 0-0 and it was a very boring game to watch, a point is actually probably quite useful in the context of the Nations League, which is the new way that international football is being played in Europe. But it was in fact the team selection, Mm. Gareth Southgate's team selection, which has got everybody talking, and perhaps people suggesting that Gareth Southgate might have made a bit of a blunder here. 
Yeah, I mean, when you look at the 1-11 to that went out against Denmark last night, it is not the most inspiring selection that Gareth Southgate could have made. And they looked desperately short of any kind of creativity or any kind of imagination on the pitch. When you've got players like, and the, most of the talking points are focused around Jack Grealish and his lack of opportunity in these two international fixtures. When you've got players like that on the bench and when your your, your team is looking particularly devoid of ideas, surely that is when you're going to bring that kind of player into the fore. And Southgate didn't do that. I think potentially the accusation towards him is that he's been a little bit cautious with the Denmark game and with the Iceland game. It's important to remember that they were competitive fixtures. They are matches that matter, but potentially he could have rolled the dice a little bit and played individuals like Grealish and played individuals like Danny Ings, who ended up getting a mere 22 minutes across both games. I mean, there's a player who's had a time of it, the season of his life and has proved that he can score goals this year and he's not getting the opportunity. So, I mean, hindsight's a brilliant thing, isn't it? And if England had walked out 5-0 winners in both games, no one would have any criticism of Gareth Southgate and his selection. But in the face of two quite disappointing, quite uninspiring matches, you kind of look at it and go, maybe there were different choices to be made. Yeah, definitely. I think the Grealish thing is really what's got people raising the questions on social media in particular, Marley, because we'll come on to it in a second. The Mason Greenwood and, and Phil Foden debacle about breaking COVID-19 protocol. Well, Foden got his start against Iceland and he would arguably have been that creative player. So for the fact that Foden's been sent home and still Jack Grealish doesn't get an opportunity, it's understandable why mainly Aston Villa fans on social media have been a bit annoyed about it. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's understandable why you can you know, say that you've got a player on the bench who, who can potentially provide a spark and, and not play him. Um, in fairness to Southgate, I think it's a um, it's more of a system decision. Um, he played a back three last night, which you can debate, um, but I don't think you can really debate that Grealish doesn't really fit into that system very well. Um, looking at Southgate's decisions, I, I think Southgate sees Grealish as a winger and therefore he's got to displace either Sancho or Sterling uh, in the England team. And I think that's the reason why he hasn't got many opportunities. Um, having said that, I think when you're expected to, to win the game, I think Grealish could play in a central midfield three. If you're playing like a 4-3-3 system with Sterling, Sancho and Kane up front, you know, similar to where Ward-Prowse played against Iceland and, and didn't really offer much. If you're then, if you've then got to deal with Sancho, Sterling and Kane up front, there's going to be more room for someone like Jack Grealish to to manoeuvre in and, and play in central midfield and, and do the things that he does for Aston Villa a little bit more because there's going to be less um, like less focus on him to do something because England have got so many players that need constantly watching. There's going to be a little bit more room for him and a little bit more opportunity. Um, so to see him not, you know, he got, what, 15 minutes last night against Denmark, it's not it's not great, it's not ideal, is it, for, for him to... Uh, to sort of get his international career going. Last night's mm. him getting on the pitch last night means he can't go go and play for Ireland, which he was probably thinking of when he didn't get in this squad because he could still I think go back and um and register for Ireland. Um but now he's been on the pitch, you've got to uh he, he's sort of locked into England now and um you look at how things are going. I don't I don't think he'll be in the next England squad with 
when you assume players are going to be back um, back to fitness, you know, Foden and Greenwood will be potentially back if they're uh, if they're not being punished and a few other central midfield options. You you've got to wonder where Grealish goes now, but um, hopefully he can prove something. If ever there and... was the opportunity for him to play, it was last night, wasn't it? I mean, you look you yeah, look 100%. at that team, the England team last night, and with exception of Sancho, Kane, and Sterling, you'd probably say that every single other player in that squad or in that first team certainly wouldn't necessarily be an automatic choice for England. And if Grealish isn't getting into that 11, you kind of wonder where he is going to fit in in the future. And I suppose for Southgate, the the question is, do you pick players to play a system as he has done or do you pick a system that suits your best players? I think international football is so intricate, isn't it? And I think a lot of people on social media were arguing about whether Gareth Southgate is building a squad for the next World Cup and for the Euros next year. And people saying, why are England changing from a system and a style which suited them so well during the World Cup? But I think the World Cup actually flattered to deceive England a little bit. And I know you can only beat who's put in front of you. And you have to give England credit for reaching the semi-finals of the World Cup in 2018. But again, there is the argument of look at the sides England played and look at how England played. And I do think that that semi-final um, achievement for England kind of is a little bit of a thorn in the side for Gareth Southgate. Because if you look at this Nations League group, which contains Denmark, Iceland and Belgium, as well as England. I mean, England obviously scraped the 1-0 win over Iceland, but Belgium who are the number one ranked side in Europe and I think in world football, actually, absolutely decimated Iceland last night. They they won 5-1 and Michi Batshuayi scored two goals. So I think that there is still a long way to go for England to really compete with the likes of Belgium in tournament football and get a result. So I do think this is interesting. It was in Belgium, um, though, and I think that's a big difference because Iceland's not an easy place to go and play football. It's, it's not, but... Because I mean, of the fo- conditions, because of the stadium, because of the the current situation with COVID, all of that added up to potentially it being more difficult for England. But I completely take your point. But a 5-1 win is a big win. It's a big victory. It's not just a, yeah. oh, they've won 2-0, 3-0. I mean, that's a four-goal swing there. And I agree with you that the World Cup was flattering to deceive for England. I thought the performances were poor for the entire World Cup, with the exception of maybe one or two games. But at the same time, I think it's been as much as a of a thorn in the side for Southgate as it has been a bit of a saving grace. And I think getting to the semis of the World Cup it has been largely what has kept Gareth Southgate in a job at times because the performances during the World Cup and the performances after, there hasn't been many absolutely stunning shows put on by England, if any. And I think the, the good grace that getting so deep into the World Cup bought Southgate has probably helped him as much as hindered. Yeah, I think that's a good point. To be fair, I do think that that Southgate, you know, you you can kind of level these accusations at him that he hasn't done this, but there are plenty of good things that he has done. Um, And picking players on form is one of the things that he has done. However, playing them in the starting 11 um, hasn't been something he's done too regularly. Mm. Like we've mentioned, not so much uh, game time for Grealish. Ings gets 22 minutes um, after the season of his life, as you say, Jim. So a few people are questioning Southgate's approach. He picks his squad on form, but maybe not his team. Yeah, that's a good point. And, And one journalistic report, Marley, suggested that this has been Gareth Southgate's most challenging international camp of his reign. I mean, is that going a little bit too far, or would that be an accurate description? Do you think? Uh, you can see, you can see the where where that argument's coming from. Um, he's had a lot to deal with. He's had, you know, he probably didn't expect these games to go ahead. Um, he's probably got the uh, the 
sort of lingering thing from the clubs like do I play you know these players every every game before they've even played a game for the clubs to you know not much pre-season either um, which is kind of why I'm surprised Harry Kane played practically 90 minutes I think he played 80 against Iceland I think he played 90 last night and Danny Ings played 22 minutes which I'd be I'd be fuming about if I was if I was Ings because I think someone put on someone summed it up on on Twitter last night. I can't remember who it was, but they said um, I was a, it was Darren Bent actually speaking sense for once, um, <laughs> saying um, Jamie Vardy. Like, he can he can understand why Jamie Vardy retired because Danny Ings has had the, the season of his life and he gets twenty minutes against Iceland at nil nil. So it's mm. kind of it it just brought it home. It was like yeah, fair enough because where's the like where's the carrot at the end of the stick for for these players who scored, you know, twenty two, twenty three goals last season in the Premier League, and then your first international against not an elite side, a side you would back yourself to score against if you're in that kind of form, uh, and you get twenty minutes against Iceland. It's it's not. It's just it it would really really great on you because Harry Kane picked himself every every time, and I'm not saying Harry Kane should be dropped, but there should be. You know other systems to get players to get two strikers up front to break down Iceland, for example. Playing a defensive midfielder in De- Declan Rice when Iceland had about fifteen percent of the possession. Like, do you really mm. need him? Mm. Not probably not. Um, so yeah, uh, it has been challenging. Obviously, the Ford and Greenwood thing didn't help. Um, and there is a little bit of sort of a, a mood change towards Southgate now. A lot of people are saying, well, what's he actually done? And mm. he can always say, well, I've got England to a, to a World Cup semi-final and he can he can die on that hill. It's a pretty good hill to die on, if I'm honest. But mm. it won't stop people um, questioning the future. But the one thing I would be wary about in the future is who else is, is out there because England's um, recruitment at the minute, it seems to be promoting from within, and the under twenty ones manager is Eddie Boothroyd, and I don't think he's ma- I don't think he's managed anyone in the Premier League for more than a few seasons. So, if you're gonna look, uh, if you're gonna look for for alternatives, you've got to ask yourself who who's out there and who can do a better job than Southgate. Well, I mean, we could have been lumped with Big Sam for the World Cup. So, uh, Jim, as a West Ham fan, I'm sure you're relieved <laughs> that you don't have to watch any more Big Sam football. If international football wasn't boring enough, imagine Big Sam <laughs> coming back as England manager. Um, although I think it is important to caveat the whole situation. Rather have Mike Bassett. That, yeah, exactly, Mike Bassett. But I think it's important to caveat the situation with, with the fact that, you know, in international camps are few and far between. So Southgate doesn't exactly have all the time in the world to kind of prepare a squad and get them training in the way that he wants to. However, two players that wouldn't have behaved in the way that Southgate or indeed their clubs or families would have wanted them to was Manchester United's Mason Greenwood and Manchester City's Phil Foden, who both broke COVID-19 protocol for England's game in Iceland by inviting girls to their team hotel. And of course, the the hotel is biosecure, which means that it's only the team members, players and staff which are allowed to be in the hotel. Um, And the two of them, who are only young lads, it must be said, broke the protocol. They've both come out and apologised. They've both said that they're embarrassed about the situation and they'll learn from the incident. And they've since been sent home or they were sent home before the Denmark game by Gareth Southgate. And uh, of course, you know, that will cause quite, not distress, but that will cause um, annoyance for both of those players. They'll be disappointed. They'll be gutted about the situation, but they've only got themselves to blame. First of all, Jim, I want to know, how have they dealt with the situation? Because you've got a teenager who's broken into the Premier League in his first season. He's 18 years old in Mason Greenwood. 
And you've got someone who's just approaching 21 or he might already be 21 in Phil Foden. So you've got someone who's getting a little bit older. Um, I mean, how do you think both players have dealt with the situation in which they've quite clearly admitted they've broken the rules and they'll need to learn from their mistakes? I think actually to date, the situation has been handled pretty well. I think what happens from now on in is probably a bigger test. I mean, the players have apologised for being bloody idiots, which is exactly what they've been. And it's kind of no worse than that. They've been really, really stupid and they've broken the restrictions that were placed on England. They had to be sent home because obviously by breaking the restrictions, they then risk infecting the, the rest of the squad. So exactly the right decision happened there. I think... The clubs and the manager have kind of said the right things in response as well. And it should really be the end of the matter because, I mean, we have seen COVID restrictions being broken right around the UK over the last few weeks by everyone in every walks of life. And whilst these two players should be observing these regulations you can kind of understand the reasons they have broken them at the same time I mean morally there's a slightly different question because of the relationships the players are in but I think what I find myself most disappointed with is the fact that the pictures of them in the hotel room with a couple of Icelandic models just involves them sitting in the corner looking at their phones I mean these are players that have been scoring for their clubs and yet they go out to Iceland and they just seem to be more interested in playing a game of snake. So I think that's probably the most disappointing aspect. But <laughs> to be honest with you, I don't, I'm not that bothered by this. I don't feel that upset by the whole thing. I think they've let themselves down. They've been stupid, but that should really be the end of the matter for a couple of young players. I think that's a really interesting narrative that you take there, Jim, because there's been plenty of discourse on social media about whether... Um, you know, these two players have been given not an easy ride, but whether, let's just say, for instance, Marley, it was James Madison who got absolutely panned for visiting a casino during England duty when he was supposed to be ill. Um, or Raheem Sterling, who we know's had a, a bad ride from the press in recent years. So is it because that these two are young players and there's a lot of discourse on social media saying, oh, just let them have their fun? But it's more serious than that. I mean, this is a pandemic and I understand where Jim's coming from because I'm not as fuming as perhaps a lot of other people are. But certainly, you know, it, it can't be taken lightly and brushed under the carpet that there are still some serious situations going on outside of the football world. Yeah, it was, uh, it, there's no doubt it was it was stupid of them. Um, you know, people are, are overreacting slightly with, you know, oh, it should be banned from upcoming upcoming you know, international football for a year or something until they grow up and that kind of thing. Yeah, it was a mistake. I, I can't think of too many footballers that haven't made mistakes in their career. Um, you know, Or even during this pandemic, you know, yeah. like you mentioned about people saying that they should be banned for a year. That wouldn't be fair, would it? When you look at Jack Grealish has broken coronavirus protocol, um, we're crashing his car and visiting a friend's house. Kyle Walker did it two or three times. I mean, we're talking about it being fair, I mean, at least you've got to be consistent. Let's bear in mind that what they've done is not against UK current coronavirus restrictions. What they've done is broken the team rules that are imposed on them whilst the England team were out in Iceland, and they've broken Icelandic coronavirus rules, which, yeah, they're in a foreign country, you have to respect the laws of that country. and the. But in terms of if they'd done what they'd done in the UK, it's fine. It would have been allowed. Because you can meet, I mean, it's so vague and strange at the moment, isn't it? No one quite seems to know what the rules are. If you asked Boris Johnson himself, he probably wouldn't be able to tell you. But I, I, it's, it's, so it's, it's not, 
we we talk about as you said when Carl Walker had his adult sex party or whatever it was in his flat that was a hundred percent against the rules at the time i'm not sure this one is which i think puts a slightly different spin on it i do i think it's against the rules because like you say you're in a foreign country so both greenwood and foden have been fined 1300 pounds um i'm not sure what that is in icelandic krona but 1300 pounds um oh, it's about a million icelandic is it? Or something ridiculous. <laughs> is it really? it's a huge amount <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. right okay so they only enough for one beer uh, only enough for one beer in, in the, yeah in the nordic countries for sure but um you know they've been fined they've been punished for it um is the fact that they got sent home marley not punishment enough i mean we don't need to really further punish them i do think though just to pick up on jim's point that this is worse um or as bad as just because the point is is that they're in a biosecure environment that's why football is allowed to take place that's why games are allowed to carry on because everyone gets tested before games they know that they're in a sanitized and secure environment. Now, you're actually, you know, compromising that environment by bringing outsiders, for want of a better term, into the team bubble. Um, and if they're infected um, without realizing, as we've seen, then that could really jeopardize the whole operation and that could encourage the whole game to be called off. So I think the seriousness can't be underplayed. I think in terms of a standalone isolated incident, Bringing two girls back to a hotel room doesn't sound that bad, but I think in terms of what it could have meant for the entire operation of that football match, I think it probably is quite serious because, you know, the Denmark game might have been called off um, because of coronavirus protocol or, well, going by UEFA standards, they probably would have encouraged England to call up an entire separate 11. It would have been <laughs> like someone's reserves being called up like we saw for the Czech side. But um, go- going back to what I said before, um, is is it not punishment enough, Marley, that they've been sent home from England duty? Is is that is that not the end of it? Uh, you'd probably say it's enough punishment because at the end of the day, if you find a footballer ten grand, they've got it, and if if you find a fifty grand, they've got it. If you find him a million quid, they've probably got it at this stage of the career, uh, or they will have it soon. So it's not really going to affect them financially. Um, there's no call f- to be banned from from Premier League games. I wouldn't think. Um, that doesn't really make sense for an international issue. Um, uh, yeah, I would say it should probably just get put to bed now. Um, obviously, these two lads are making their England debuts and they've been sent home, which will will hit them. Um, sort of, it will affect them, uh, and it is a punishment that they, that they will feel because they they will feel like they've let the squad down, and and they have um, to to draw a line under it. They they have let the squad down and made a poor decision um one that would only tend to come when you're you know you're 20 years old and 18 years old or whatever mason greenwood is so yeah i think that's that should be enough punishment now i don't think it'll it'll rumble on for too long um the interesting thing will just come the next time an international squad gets announced and whether they're playing well for the countries or uh, the clubs or not uh, we'll see if they get called up to the country's national team but um, we'll only see that in time. I think Southgate seems to be a guy who is almost like a bit of a father figure to to the clubs, uh, to the country. Sorry, but it, it seems to me like he will sort of hold it against him a little bit. But again, like we we can't really say until until the next uh, squad comes out in sort of uh, October time. So we'll see what he does. But you know, it it was silly for for the lads to do things like that because you know it's just like you say to buy a secure hotel i don't even know where the hell did they even meet these girls like surely they've been at training and then the hotel and then training and then traveling to the match like 
fair play. Wonderful like, world of Instagram. Work, working Marley. quick. I don't. <laughs> it's, it's almost got to be respected. How you how have you done that so quick? A couple of DMs and you've got a couple. I think of, models and footballers. Yeah have some kind of magic attraction to each other. They just kind of like, there's a well, special yeah. Tinder that connects models and footballers. Well, actually, I'll be honest. I've seen the Instagram account of the girl that Foden was talking to, and she's actually done some posting on her account. She's only got a couple of thousand followers. Um, she's done some posting on her account in English where she said, I didn't Google Foden before I went to the hotel, so I didn't know he had a girlfriend and a child. So wow. <laughs> that, tells you, that tells you what you need to know about the situation, I think. But that's enough England for now. Time to take a quick break here on Football Social Daily and afterwards we'll be talking about the brilliant Kevin De Bruyne who's won the PFA Player of the Year award. Football Social Daily. Get daily news and updates on your team via your Amazon Alexa. Just ask Alexa. Open Sports Social. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. This is the only daily Premier League podcast brought to you from Sports Social. And when the season kicks off again for 2020-2021, which is on Saturday, only a couple of days away now, we'll be back to seven days a week. So hit the subscribe button and you won't ever miss another episode of the podcast. Seven days a week, a new podcast until the season is over. Time to talk about last season, though, and the PFA Player of the Year Award, which has been handed out to Manchester City's Kevin De Bruyne. He's been an absolute phenomenon since he's returned to the Premier League. Of course, he was sold by Chelsea initially some years ago now before kind of tearing it up in the Bundesliga with Wolfsburg and then coming back to Manchester City, uh, coming back to the Premier League with Manchester City. And now he's got his just rewards for a brilliant season last year, Jim. I would say that Kevin De Bruyne's award is deserved despite the fact that Liverpool won the league by such a margin. I mean, would you agree with that? Do you think Kevin De Bruyne was the best player in the Premier League last season? I think he's been one of the best players in the world are the obvious two that could compete for that title. He has been absolutely fantastic. And it just goes to show in his stats in terms of his contributions to Manchester City games and how much they've struggled in the games where he hasn't been available. So, yeah, it, it couldn't go to anyone else, really. And I appreciate the calls saying that it should have gone to a Liverpool player having won their first title in 30 years. But, I mean, it goes to a Liverpool player every single other season, doesn't it? So it's nice for Manchester City to finally get a bit of recognition and Kevin De Bruyne to be the first ever Manchester City player to win the award as well. Yeah, certainly Kevin De Bruyne last year, his performances were outstanding in a Manchester City side, which arguably underperformed, particularly in terms of how far behind they were Liverpool in the end. I mean, we've seen him miss a season entirely due to a serious knee injury, Marley, but Manchester City still went on and ended up winning the title at a cancer. How important is it that City do keep him fit now? Because we've seen how instrumental he is to the way they play. Yeah, he's massively important. Um, the numbers he, he puts in uh, are ridiculous for a centre midfielder. I think, was it 13 goals and 20 assists last season? Uh, I don't think that's really been matched since the, the prime of Yaya Toure five or six years ago. Um, I agree with Jim. I think I don't think there's a centre midfielder in the world better than him. Um, I don't think that there's anyone I'd rather watch in the Premier League as a neutral in, in any position than him. Um, the way the way he just takes the game by the scruff of the neck is is ridiculous. You, you look at the talent on show in every Premier League side, pretty much except West Ham, um, and you see him just controlling games <laughs> as if he's you know having a kickabout down the park. So I'm glad that uh, the PFA recognise this and, and give him the, the Player of the Year award because, as we've said, you know, so we're blue in the face. Um, Jordan Henderson didn't have as good a season as, as De Bruyne, and it's not even up for debate. 
Um, so to, to it would have been probably one of the biggest travesties for uh, people to look back in, in a couple of years um, and say, how did De Bruyne not win the award that season? Because Henderson did, what, three three goals and seven assists or something like that. So it's... Um, it's good from the PFA that they finally went right. Okay, well, we can't really not give it him, so they've they've made the right decision, I think. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask, is he the best player in the Premier League? But Jim, you seem to have already answered that by saying not only is he one of the best um, around, because he's like you say, he would get into a world eleven, wouldn't he? If there was a world eleven constructed, Kevin De Bruyne would hundred percent be in that squad. Yeah, he would. I think we've sung his praises. What I don't get about this whole scenario is why do Manchester City fans care? And there was celebration on Manchester City Twitter last night or when it was announced. And people seemed to be really excited by the fact that Kevin De Bruyne had won it or a Manchester City player in general had won it. I mean, they've won, what, four Premier League titles in the last eight years or something. <laughs> and they're worried about who's winning the PFA Player of the Year. I don't get it. It's, it's a weird mentality to be that excited by one player getting a little bit of recognition. I doubt very much that... Kevin De Bruyne cares much and I don't think Manchester City fans should either. Yeah, but that, that's more because they've been screwed over in the past. Like when they won back-to-back titles, I think Man City's players didn't get recognised for it. They didn't. It's almost like, mm. I think Man City fans feel that the Premier League ignores them a little bit and doesn't give them the credit they deserve. Um, and in fairness, I think they've got a, I think I, they've got a point. I think, that, I, I, I think I, they really do. I agree with both of you actually I'm kind of on the fence with this one because I can understand Manchester City fans kind of jubilation that one of their players has finally been recognized because as Marley says the last two seasons they have gone the awards have gone to Liverpool players and one of those seasons Manchester City won a domestic treble uh, and one of their players didn't get the award but as you mentioned Jim I do find it a bit peculiar because I mean do you think Manchester City fans should care more about Kevin De Bruyne getting an award or the fact that their team... Do you really think that in the season that City won the treble, that the players were asked that none of them won an individual award? Like, it doesn't really mean much, does it? I mean, it's a team game, I know, played by individuals, but isn't it about the trophies you lift at the end of the season that actually mean something to the club? And, you know, you're not going to be shouting that from the rooftops. I think the awards kind of mean more to idiots like us on podcasts talking than they do to actually players themselves. I'd hope that was the case anyway. And, I mean, you've got to remember that things like the PFA award are voted for by the players in the league. So it's no surprise that a team like Manchester City aren't going to potentially get the recognition they deserve because the players are people and they will hold grudges and they will be jealous and they will look at Manchester City and I'm not saying this is necessarily a view I hold, but there'll be people in the league that look at Manchester City having bought their success and having unnaturally been invested in in a way that maybe they don't quite deserve mm. the success they have. So it's, it's understandable that they wouldn't vote for a Manchester City player. So they're the reason. It's not just this is judged to be the greatest player. It's this is judged to be the greatest mm. player. But the caveat to that is someone might not like them. They might not be that sociable at players' events and people might vote for their mates and they might be jealous. So all these different criteria come into it, which just adds up to the idea that it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I I thought it was a bit weird. And I've said this for a while about Manchester City fans on Twitter, particularly when it comes to celebrating their players' achievements and like your centre midfielder could never sort of thing. It's like, it's just the most pathetic muscle flexing I've ever seen. I mean, I don't like when people diss Manchester City in terms of their support because they are a fantastically well-supported club. They have better average attendances than the likes of Liverpool. Um, So I think that that should be 
brought mm. into the frame when talking about Manchester City. They have got a history. Before the money came in, they have a proud history at Manchester City. And I do think they get an unfair uh, rap from a lot of people suggesting that they've kind of bought their way to success. Now, that is a fact and clear. The money has no doubt helped them to be successful in recent years. But they are a proud football club. Um, with plenty of history. Um, and, and I do think that the fans get an unfair treatment from some sections of supporters in the media um, for being this kind of, oh, we turn up when we want and only when you know, the games really matter sort of thing. I do think, you know, and these all empty had vibes and stuff like that. And I do think that's a little bit unfair. Um, but I can't defend that it's just cringy on social media like the way that like you mentioned Jim they're all celebrating a title for someone <laughs> I mean Kevin De Bruyne probably just chucked it in the boot of his car and drove <laughs> home he's the sort of player that doesn't care um, but as you mentioned he wins the PFA player of the year and uh, well deserved from all of us here at Football Social Daily and our opinions I think we can all agree on that right then a flurry of signings at Everton and at Sheffield United and we'll start at Goodison Park where the Blues have moved to bring in James Rodriguez from Real Madrid, Alan from Napoli, Abdoulaye Decore as well from Watford. Those are the three confirmed signings. And it looks like Fikayo Tomori could also arrive from Chelsea on loan. Now, we've mentioned, Marley, about Everton's project over the last couple of podcasts and Carlo Ancelotti's plan to get Everton up there again. Um, we look at those three signings and all of a sudden, in the space of a week, Everton look, look a lot more dangerous than they did uh, at the end of last season. Yeah, they've, uh, they've had a good window. Um they're close to taking that. We won the transfer window title from Chelsea, I think, uh, with with the signings they've <laughs> they've uh, they've made. Um, I think, to be fair, if you look at Everton's team at the end of last season, I don't think there's a there's a department in that team which you can say can't be improved. Um, you know, the defense a little bit shaky at times. Um, not enough goals up front, and the midfield wasn't creating enough. Um, so to bring in. You know, two midfielders like well, three midfielders, Alan Decore and James Rodriguez to play with Andre Gomez. That all of a sudden looks like a top top midfield, and they should create the chances to um, to score enough goals to to propel them up the league a little bit. But I do worry about how many goals they're going to score with with Calvert Lewin. Can he replicate that form of of pre lockdown when he? I think he ended up with 12 or 13 goals or something like that. He, he looked to be maturing into a really sort of dangerous player. Um, and if they can get a, another centre-back in, I think they, I think that's what they need. Um, I still think there's a lot of work to do for Everton. If you look at the strength of the top six, I think the top six is really, really, really strong. And then you've got Leicester and Wolves sitting just outside it. So all of a sudden, if you can break the top eight, then that's great. But for the outlay that Everton have had, it's a hell of a lot of money they've spent and it's it's almost like high risk and, and no reward if they don't get into that at least top eight, top seven because the the players they're bringing in and the manager they've got and the stadium they're getting and they're, they're gambling massively on on some sort of success in the, in the next two or three years because otherwise it's just not sustainable um, and especially with the, the times as they are, you know, these days with the uncertain future about everything in the world then it's uh, it's a really big risk for Everton and it's, I hope for their sake that they can do it but I, to be honest I don't see them cracking the top six this season, I don't think they're as good as anyone else in the top six so you can bring in James Rodriguez and, and that's that's great but unless he gets the the tools around him to, to help him you know succeed and flourish then I think they, they I can't see them getting in the top six mate 
Yeah, I think that's the question, isn't it? Can Everton, despite their strengthening gym, actually, even with these signings, break into that crop of Europa League sides? It's going to be tough. There's a lot of teams that are competing for those top six spots. I mean, they have strengthened well, as Marley says. They've identified their midfield as a weak point in last season and they've gone all out to strengthen that area. So they are doing the right things and they're making the right moves. I guess the question is how long the owners have patience in Project Ancelotti and patience in it to deliver because it might take more than one window or two windows to actually turn Everton into a team that can compete in that top six. I think Marley's spot on that you still worry slightly about where the goals are going to come from in that team and whether Calvert-Lewin is the man. I mean, Tosin's not going to get you those goals with the best win in the world, is he? (laughs) But, I mean, I wonder whether Richarlison might play through the centre next season. I wonder whether, I mean, you look at that midfield... And he's certainly one of the more offensive players that you potentially class as a midfielder. So I wonder whether he's going to be your out-and-out striker for the coming season. I mean, financially, I think Everton have got a job, even though they've got massive investment to balance the books, because they've got a lot of big earners in that Everton team now who aren't going to be getting any game time. And I'm talking about people like Theo Walcott, Moise Keane. I wonder how long he's going to... Day around, Yannick Balassi is in that squad. You can't imagine him getting into it. Awobi's probably going to be on as well out. Sigerson's still a, an Everton player as well. So now they've got all these players in, they need to start getting rid of a few of their big earners and their big names as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think the interesting one, which might even be announced by the time this podcast is being released, is the fact that um, they're close to taking Fikayo Tomori on loan from Chelsea. Now their loan for Zuma a couple of seasons ago worked really well for them. Um, but Tamori, who played pretty well for Chelsea last season, I'm quite surprised to see that Chelsea are keen to, to loan him out. But anyway, yeah, Everton signed James Rodriguez, Alan, Decore, and possibly Tamori on a loan deal. Another side who've been busy in the transfer market over the weekend, Sheffield United, Jim. They've signed uh, Lowe and Bogle from Derby County and Ethan Ampadu, who's also on loan from Chelsea. So how big a boost is this for Chris Wilder, who said that you know they've been working really hard over the last couple of weeks to get these signings over the line? I think it is, I mean, they're they're all signings that probably aren't going to excite Sheffield United fans that much. There isn't a James Rodriguez in there. But at the same time, it seems to be Sheffield United building on what they've already done and identifying players that they think have got big futures in the game but aren't going to break the bank in doing so. Um I mean, Bogle, Lowe and Ampadu are all young, exciting prospect players. And you'd hope that Chris Wilder was the type of manager who can develop them and bring them through. So, yeah, I think it's decent business for Sheffield United. I think they're still in a place where they're looking to consolidate on last season rather than better it. And I think a mid-table finish will be what most Sheffield United fans should be happy with next season. And these are all players that are going to add strength and depth to the squad and help them achieve that. Yeah, I certainly think that, you know, uh, Max Lowe, Jaden Bogle from Derby are two young players that have been exciting in the championship over the last few years, Marley. And Chris Wilder said himself that the championship has been a decent hunting ground for Sheffield United. And they'll be hoping that those players can come in and hit the ground running and kind of continue the momentum that the Blades have from last season. Yeah, it's um, it's also three more British signings for Sheffield United. I don't know what they've 
They've barely ever signed a foreigner, haven't they? Except Sander Berger, and then Sivkovic came in last season. I think he's gone. I think he's gone back on loan now. Uh, off, finished his loan and, and gone back. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's talent in the championship. Um, Newcastle have done the same this week with Jamal Lewis, uh, Wilson, and and Fraser all coming in. Um, there is players in there that don't deserve to be in the championship, and I think. Uh, the way Wilder plays, he's got very uh, unique a unique system where he always has full uh, wing backs. So Baldock and Stevens are really good players, but when you're playing every game in a, such an energetic position where you need a lot of stamina, you are going to need backups. And he seems to have identified that really well and, and gone and got probably the two uh, highest potential full backs uh, slash wing backs in the championship in, in Bogle and, and Lowe. Um, so, yeah. It seems like a, a good move for for Sheffield United, and we'll see what they can do next season because they're gonna have to, you know, got big boots to fill. Uh, in, well, in considering the, they're their own boots to fill uh, after what they did last <laughs> season, they, they need to go and do it again. So, I think they've signed quite shrewdly. Um, I'd still, as always with Sheffield United, I, I still worry about the goals they're gonna get up front. Um, but yeah, I mean, as fullbacks go, and and Ampadu as well, I think they're uh, I think they're good signings for, for for Sheffield. Proven players as well, players that have uh, they've they've they're not young prospects who haven't had that much experience, particularly with Jaden Bogle. I mean, he's only twenty and he's getting on for a hundred appearances for Derby County, so it's not like they're massive wild cards either. They're players that have kind of done it previously. They need to step up, yeah, but it's not so much of a gamble as signing say for example a 20 year old well like someone like um, Ampadu from from Chelsea who hasn't necessarily had that first time experience well I think it's interesting you mentioned Ampadu because he's the one I'm most excited to see Jim just purely because and, and I'm going to sound like you know when people are like oh I like that band before they were famous but um, I actually <laughs> been following Ampadu for a long time because he actually played uh, a game that I commentated on uh, for Exeter City and he was 15. He played at centre-back and he was 15. He had to get permission from his school head teacher to let him play the game, um, wow. to get him uh, to allow him to leave school early to go to training and stuff. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm really excited to see how he turns out. And although he didn't really get much of a chance at RB Leipzig last season, I'm hoping that he'll get more of a chance at Sheffield United this time around. Right, more transfer talk after this quick break here on Football Social Daily. <laughs> Football Social Daily. Get daily news and updates on your team via your Amazon Alexa. Just ask Alexa. Open Sports Social. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Welcome back to the show. This is Football Social Daily from Sports Social. I'm Niall. I've got Jim and Marley alongside me to talk transfers. And we've mentioned about how there's plenty of good talent in the championship. Um, and it looks like Ollie Watkins could be on his way to Aston Villa for £28 million from Brentford. Now, Brentford have not been uh, coy in the fact that they're going to charge big money for their players, which have done them so well last season in the championship, just missing out on promotion to the Premier League for the first time in their history. Um, Ollie Watkins is one of those players, Marley, who's been a striker in good form. Aston Villa perhaps have kind of missed the mark with their striker signings in the last season or so. So um, does this look like a good fit? And what do you think of the price tag? 28 million quid. Well, we, we said we said just before the break that there was a talent in the championship and the fact that some, that Watkins is, is tagged at, at 28 million is uh, is proof of that, that, that everyone knows it. Um, 28 million quid's a, a huge uh, price tag but you can't say he's not really uh, he's not really 
deserved that price to be put on him because he's he scored loads of goals for for Brentford in a very good team. Um and it was only a matter of time before somebody really came knocking and, and trying to take him as soon as Brentford uh, lost that uh, playoff final to Fulham. As soon as that happened, it was like, right, OK, you're going to lose a couple of your players here because you can't come that close and, and have so many standout players um, and not get them poached. I'm surprised Ben Rahmer hasn't gone somewhere uh, as well. So Brentford are doing quite well to keep hold of them. But it does look like Watkins is going to leave. Um, Aston Villa... I'd, I'd, the only thing I think is I'd maybe worry about how Villa play compared to how Brentford play in terms of uh, the possession they have. Villa tend to be a bit more direct and a bit more, um, a bit less of a uh, a sort of possession based style than than Brentford were. But you know you've got to take that chance as a, as a player to get into the Premier League. You've got to, you've got to come into a new team and and find a new role and find where you're comfortable at and. I think Villa desperately need another another player that they can worry the opposition with. Um, even if he just takes a bit of the attention off Jack Grealish, then I think uh, that's that'd be good for them because everyone figured out how to play against Aston Villa uh, last season. This probably from January on, onwards, Grealish didn't do as much as he did in the first half. Everyone realised that if you stop him, you stop Villa. So they need a, another another weapon that they can threaten the opposition with. I think because. It was getting too easy, and I think Villa were far, far too easy to play against. So they need someone, and Wesley's—I think Wesley's still injured. So mm. uh, yeah, you need you need goals. So that's the price it costs now to to take a chance. <laughs> Me and you saying if you stop Grealish, you stop Aston Villa is our podcast equivalent of when Dion Dublin says the stairs going up to the bedroom from home under the hammer. <laughs> yeah. um, it, is, clip that. it is the exact but same. We're all, we're all right. We're right when we say it. And uh, Dion Dublin has never pointed at something which isn't <laughs> stairs and say, they're the stairs that lead up to the bedroom. <laughs> we're um, all right. I think we, yeah, we are all right. We are all right. Most of the time, stairs do go up to the bedrooms. And most of the time, if you stop Jack Grealish, you do stop Aston Villa. So, yeah, you are correct. Um, but in terms of that £28 million price tag, Jim, I've said this on the podcast for about a year now. I just think that I think the way the transfer market has gone, people are still trying to get to grips with the fact that £28 million quid sounds like loads of money for a championship striker who plays for Brentford. But is that just now commonplace? Is, is that not just how much things cost now. I mean, you look at the likes of Alaire and Joel Linton who have gone for 40 million. So, I mean, is that not just the going rate for a prem, uh, for a championship striker now? Yeah, completely. And he was always going to go for around 25 million. That was the price that was being touted around the second that Brentford failed to secure that Premier League spot. So, I mean, 28 million pounds seems like reasonable value. The most difficult thing in football is finding a striker that's going to score you over 15 goals a season and Ollie Watkins looks like a striker that might be able to score over 15 goals a season and he's exactly what Aston Villa need plus you add on the English tax and boom yeah 28 million quid no problem I think it's a decent bit of business for Aston Villa as a West Ham fan I'm a little bit gutted because I'd really hoped that he might be on his way to West Ham, but obviously he's £28 million more than the board are willing to spend, so that's never going to happen. But a very good signing for Aston Villa. Um, I wait to see with... I'm quite excited to see what he can do in the in the Premier League, mm. and 
I'd back him to succeed. Talking of price tags, Manchester United are said to still want Sancho. That's the latest from Sky Sports News. But they reckon that Dortmund's £100 million plus valuation of Jadon Sancho is unrealistic in the current climate. Now, I kind of had a little chuckle to myself at this one, Marley. If Dortmund value Sancho at £100 million, that's what he costs, is it not? I mean, he's one of the world's brightest young talents. He is hot property. He is a commodity for Dortmund. And with Bayern Munich absolutely destroying the Champions League and the Bundesliga last season, Dortmund are keen to keep hold of him to improve their chances domestically. And who can blame them? Um, are Manchester United being a little bit silly here by suggesting that Dortmund have overpriced Sancho? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> We're talking about a club who paid £52 million for Fred. <laughs> Honestly, them giving out advice on transfer market is just... It, it, it's baffling, like, oh, you know, that that's too much. It's like, well, you know, you look back through, through your history and you've not exactly done the best job of getting players for a bargain fee. You had to pay a world record fee to get Harry Maguire. You could argue whether he was worth it. I think you paid £40 million for Lindelof, uh, 52 for Fred. You know, these, these their history is not one that suggests they can judge the transfer market uh, accordingly. So I think... I think Sancho for 100 million is genuinely not that much money. When If you get five years of service out of him, 20 million pound a year, and then you sell him on for, let's say you sell him on for 80 million, you make a 20, pound, 20 million pound loss, for example, in some bizarre situation, you've still not paid that much money. You've still paid 20 million net over the uh, over the six years you'll have him, for example, something like that. So the, re- the fact of the reality, the reality is that you're probably not going to sell him for for much less than 100 million in in the future if you ever do. So does he not pay for himself over over the length of his contract? I think he does. Um, And the endorsements he brings in and the the media stuff, um, you know, the sponsorship and things like that and the the buzz around the club, is that not worth 100 million? I think it is. Um, When you consider the top, top players in Europe um, are probably going for, for more than that. If you try to sign you know, Neymar or Mbappe, how much would they cost? Probably at least 200 million. So to get someone the age of Sancho, I think uh, for 100 million and then to moan about it, I think is a, a silly a silly thing. I think they're gambling on them being the only club that want him and it's got the potential to really come back and sting them because if Real Madrid have a, a poor season next year or let's look, let's look at Barcelona, if they lose Messi next year, they're going to be looking at the best wingers in Europe and saying, we've got money to spend. We've got a million pounds on the wage budget freed up by Messi leaving who can we get and will they will they look at the Bundesliga and look at Sancho and go will he fancy it because he will 100% he will and Man United they seem to me like they're taking too much of a chance of being the only fish um, in the pond like fishing for him kind of thing and I think it, fish, it, fish. Yeah, fish. No, fisherman fish. fish. I don't think fish, fish. No, some, <laughs> there's some cannibalistic fish that get rods and fish themselves. Um, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but I think they're taking a massive risk on this, and I genuinely think 100 million quid's not that much. Well, Dortmund are playing hardball, Jim, and who can blame them? Like I've mentioned before, Sancho is one of the Europe's top wingers at this moment in time. Um, they've categorically stated that. Sancho is not for sale, but Manchester United are not giving up the ghost on the signing just yet. Uh, do you think that it is just going to stay as it is right now? We're not going to see much of a change between now and the 5th of October when the transfer window closes? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, it's not up to Manchester United, is it, how much Sancho's going to cost. It's up to Dortmund, who, as you say, have said, we don't have to sell him. We're, we're not going to sell him unless our valuation is met. I can't go into Tesco and look at a 12-quid bottle of wine and go, oh, I really want that 12-quid bottle of wine, but I want it for six quid. It's just not going to happen. I don't set the prices. Tesco set the prices. And it's exactly that I don't look at 12-quid bottles of wine, by the way. £5 is my limit. <laughs> but Dortmund are setting the price, and it's up to them whether that valuation is met. And I agree with Marley as well. I think in today's market, we've talked about where valuations are at the moment. Sancho is probably worth every bit that £100 million. There's an incredibly talented player in there that will bring a lot of not only talent to that Manchester United squad but endorsements and sponsorship deals as well so yeah I mean Manchester United you either shut up and pay it or go and spend your money somewhere else and scout a different player. Okay, well, that's the latest on Jaden Sancho. United still not giving up on possibly bringing the young Englishman to Old Trafford. And Crystal Palace are also uh, not giving up on the signing of Michi Batshuayi on loan from Chelsea. This one looks to be a lot closer than the Sancho to Manchester United deal, though. We've mentioned before, Marley, about the lack of goals in uh, Crystal Palace's side. Only Norwich scored fewer goals than Crystal Palace in the Premier League last season, and they were relegated in last place. So they need strikers, they need firepower, and Michi Batshuayi will hopefully provide that for them. Yeah, it's, uh, it seems like a really good move uh, for for all involved. I think Batshuayi, I was thinking about this yesterday when when it was sort of coming close. I, I, I think Batshuayi has been massively mis, mishandled by Chelsea. Um, it's almost like they've been keeping him hostage for, for a few years now because they're not playing him in games. He's not getting enough game time behind... Well, last season it was Giroud and um, and Abraham, and then this season obviously they've signed Werner as well, so he's going to get even lower in the in the pecking order. Um, and then they've, they've made him sign a year's extension and then loaned him out, so they don't lose a, a transfer fee, but uh, well, a potential transfer fee at the end of it. But we see how good he is every time he gets on the pitch. He always seems to have a goal in him. He might not do much in terms of his all-round game. But he's, he's a finisher and, and they pay for themselves in, in the Premier League because he's, last time, in I think in for, for Palace, he got 5-11 in 11 in the league. And that's that's a 1-2 hit rate for a for a, a relatively poor team. We don't create that many chances in Crystal Palace. So I don't really see why he's not been given as much of a chance. Um, at, well, possibly not at Chelsea, but you know if, if they're going to loan him, then uh, I'm kind of, kind of surprised someone like Everton hasn't come in and, and had a look at him. But... You know, um, it's it's important for him to go out on loan and get games ahead of Euro 2021. Um, and we've seen what he can do last night. He was man of the match for Belgium last night against Iceland. Um, he scored, he, he played well, and Crystal Palace will be hoping he can do that because I think Crystal Palace have, have had a relatively poor transfer window with, I think they've only signed that SA from QPR and there's still question marks over what Zaha's going to do. They seem to be giving him the captain's armband in pre-season, trying to persuade him to stay, but it, it seems a bit desperate for me uh, with Crystal Palace. So now they've sorted out the goals um, with Batsway coming in or expected to come in, then I think, they're, uh, I think they've given themselves a bit more of a fighting chance of getting towards that sort of uh, mid-table, 12th, 13th, maybe even 10th sort of thing. Uh, again, so we'll we'll see what they can do. But survival, yes, <laughs> that's the thing. Survival. Roy Hodgson's been trying to survive for for a long time now, um, <laughs> as as he ticks towards, you know, 
elderly life. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's just trying to stay out of retirement at home, isn't he, by signing strikers and carrying on. But we'll see what Batshuayi can do. But I think that's that's good business for everyone, I think. He's only got a year left on his contract. Um, Alexander Serlet has been on loan what? in Turkey and he's fired Trabzonspor um, to the Champions League next season, Jim. Um, but they've messed up Crystal Palace in the contracts and now Trabzonspor can actually buy him for £5.5 million. There is an option to buy. So they needed to bring a striker in anyway. And if you look at this, it's Batshuayi or Connor Wickham or Benteke. I mean, I think I know who's the cream of the crop out of those three. Yeah, I mean, he is the best striker from that lot. I do wonder what it says about the potential future of Wilfred Zahar. And I know they're completely different players, but I wonder if they're looking to potentially replace the goal threat that Wolf Wolf Zahar brings to that Crystal Palace team amongst interest from Everton, from what I've heard. So it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of weeks. It's been a long time rumour that he's going to leave the club and... There's, what, four weeks left of the transfer window. There's still plenty of time for that to happen. And that's it for today's Football Social Daily as well. So thanks very much, Jim. Nice one. Thank you, Marley. Thank you. Don't forget to hit subscribe on the podcast and you won't ever miss another episode again because as of Friday, we're back to seven days a week until the end of the season. So every single day of the football season, you won't miss an episode of the Football Social Daily podcast if you do hit that subscribe button. So we'll speak to you on Friday and uh, look forward to the start of the new season. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.